who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors to best-selling authors and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You're listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. Day 89 of Corona Apocalypse. Hope you guys are doing well. Today on the show is uh, Dr. Stephen Knott, who a couple things about this program that I'm going to talk about in just a bit. The first is about oral histories. Um, I am a sucker for those. I got involved in the journalism part of that a little bit later on in my career. So I want to talk about that. And then also this notion that Stephen and I talked about. He writes about presidents, and, and particularly um, Bush and Reagan uh, were, were a lot of his scholarship, or a lot of his writing early on. So it's, I'm back in the hitter, uh, historian stream, and uh, we have a fun conversation with somebody who did not set out to be a writer, which... Doesn't always happen on this program. Uh, just a couple housekeeping notes. If you go to my website, thebradking.com, you will find all kinds of stuff there. First, I do a monthly happy hour and book club. On June 26th, we have Janelle Brown. There's a sign up on the site. And in July, on July 24th, we have Louise Fine, whose book, People Like Us, it is Daughter of the Reich here in America. Um, that book is out now. I just started reading it, and uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's heavy. This ain't a beach read. So if you're interested, please go sign up and come join us for that. While you're there, get a little pop-up to sign up for my newsletter. Um, you can fill that out. You get a free book when you do that. Also, I send out this monthly newsletter with literary happenings and things that are going on that I think are cool. Um, and also that people send me. So sign up for that. And there's a link across the top 
that is Bookshop. And if you click on that, you'll go to bookshop.org, which is one of my favorite new companies. Um, they partner with independent and small bookstores across the country. And instead of giving your money to Amazon, you can give your money to local bookstores. So you can buy any of the books from anybody who's been on the program. Okay, now we got that out of the way. So a couple things to talk about today. And they kind of go together. And as much as stories that I tell go together, just hang with me and I think we'll get there. So I've talked about Studs Terkel before in the past. Chicago journalist, writer, ask people questions, open up his, or turn on his tape recorder and just record things. And essentially he would just publish edited transcripts of things that they said about things like race or class or work, or the Great Depression, right? And he did this not as a sort of scientific approach. It was a writer approach. Like, I just want to allow people to hear American voices responding to things that we all collectively go through. This is a powerful notion. Before social media, before the interconnectivity that we all have today, there weren't places that you could hear these voices. And Studs Terkel's books did that. I didn't read his columns. I didn't grow up you know, in Chicago. But in college, I came across his books and, and just began reading his books and just devouring the voices. Always something that attracted me to writing was voices. And even before I'd come across Studs Terkel, there were countless oral histories of the civil rights movements that I'd read um, that they would, you know, interview local organizers, people who were on the ground, some names that you knew, but many that you didn't, talking about events of that day and, you know, what happened in Selma and on and on and on. And... Those books to this day resonate with me. Like when I think about the most powerful, important books in my life, like I love Fitzgerald. You'll, you know, if you, if you meet me in person and ask me about Fitzgerald, you just hang on for a bit because I got some things to say. But the books that I think about when I write are, are those that are the authentic voices of Americans talking about things that happened. So Stephen worked on an oral history project uh, for the Reagan and Bush years, that 12 years in the, in the 80s, uh, in, in the first part of the 90s. And we were talking about all the people that he talked to and the difference between getting someone who was like the president who wouldn't want to have those conversations and then talking to people on the janitorial staff who would just sit down and say what happened because they don't have a dog in the fight. And that's the best part of those kinds of stories is that you hear contextual things that you wouldn't get otherwise. And if you go back a few episodes when I had Dr. Hillary Green on, a large part of our conversation was on her scholarship, which is about doing that, right? So there are these lines that I begin to draw with oral histories and I was just contemplating and thinking about it because in this episode, it's not a long digression, but it's a digression where 
we talk about George Herbert Walker Bush. And I said very simply, he feels like in my lifetime, the last American presidential statesman. Somebody who, sir, you know, youngest aviator in World War II, director of the CIA, lifetime of service, vice president, president, right? Like, don't have to agree with his policies. You don't even have to like the fact that there is a Bush family in the same way there's a Clinton family and a Kennedy family. Like, you may not like that. But there is something to be said for people that who, who are from places like that and make it their life's mission to serve the country. For me, that's a thing. Even though he suggested that his personal feeling was that someone like me, who's an atheist, shouldn't be an American citizen, shouldn't have the rights of an American citizen. And then followed it up by saying, but I'm the president and I can't do that. So don't worry about it. So understand, like, I don't agree with everything that he did and we could probably sit down and have a long conversation about all the things that I don't like that he did. But the idea was this statesman thing. And I, and I think I... I think that for the reasons that I've articulated, but as I went back and re-listened to that discussion and was thinking about oral histories and thinking about Studs Terkel and thinking about Hillary Green and thinking about the sort of way in which we were talking about former President Bush is that we really are in a moment of lenses. And it is very easy for me to, to, to look back just because of my childhood and how I grew up, and to say, well, you know, I think Bush was a, the last presidential statesman president. And that does not seem in my head when I said it then, and as I say it now, my initial response is, well, that's not controversial. Like, this is clearly something that people think, right? This is, I've had this discussion with many people, and as I've talked about, like, I have a diverse group of friends. But we have lenses that we didn't have before or lenses that weren't readily seen by the rest of us. And I don't know what it would look like for me to look at him through those lenses, although I suspect I will be finding out in the next couple of weeks as I begin to bring this up to all my friends. But this seems to be, as I look around at the world today, America, not the world, as I look around America and I see Black Lives Matter in the streets, righteously in the streets, millions of people across the country. And as I was reflecting on all of this stuff that I was just talking about, I just thought, we have a lens problem. And not that there's too many, that we are not giving equal time to all of the lenses. One of the things as a writer, and John and I talked about this when we were doing the second edition of Dungeons and Dreamers, we called it a story of how computer games built a global community. And the A story was really important to us because we kept saying these are just events in a timeline. And depending on where you come in, depending on what you look at, depending on the experience of each of the experiences, you may have a different story of how those events went together. And so calling it the story of how computer games created a global community felt not only 
inaccurate, but myopic. This is what's been resonating in my head because I love everything about Stephen's stories and Stephen's story, and it it touches on so many of the interests that I have in life: history, oral histories, salacious gossip, and politics. Like all of these things are interesting, and you're gonna love it. He's and he's a great guy. And his latest book is "The Lost Soul of the American Presidency." So it's a timely book. But also this discussion as I listened to it and just had me reflecting on all of these things is the goal that we need to have right now is to have more lenses that we see events through. Because when you do that, if you're paying attention, you have some empathy, it's not so hard to give up your lens because that other lens adds something else. Right? It enriches whatever you saw because it's different. So, that is a long way around me getting you to Dr. Stephen Knott, whose book, The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, is out now. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Stephen. start all of these pandemic conversations with the same question. Where are you at and how are things going there? So I live in uh, Canton, Massachusetts uh, with my wife and my dog. So far, things are going well. Um, We've had one member of the extended family came down with COVID early on, but recovered completely. So uh, couldn't be going better. Thankfully, that person recovered right away. So, so far, so good. Have you guys been locked down for for a while? I know we here in Pittsburgh, it's I think we're on like day almost 80 now. We've been locked down for a while. Yes, we've been locked down for quite some time. Uh, I am getting the impression that things are loosening up a bit. Um, the local Starbucks finally opened up for, you know, takeout orders. So uh, definitely more traffic on the roads these days. Uh, my wife and I tend to, walk to the local supermarket, and we've noticed just increasing traffic over the last week or two. But yeah, Governor Baker here in Massachusetts has imposed some pretty stringent restrictions, I think rightfully so, because Boston has been hit quite hard. Yeah, it's we're lucky because while Pittsburgh is a big city, it's like a small big city, and it's really neighborhoody. So even though we've been locked down, we have a bunch of parks here, so you can get out in the parks and walk and hike and not really see anybody, which has nice. made, yeah, it's made all the difference because I love my dog, but 80 <laughs> days of just my dog and I is like, that's a little bit too much even for somebody as country as I am. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I, I love my dog too, and my dog is loving this situation because my wife and I are home almost all the time, so... Yeah, this is a recurring theme on the show is everybody's animals like this is the greatest setup that's ever happened. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. She's going to be very disappointed with life returns to normal. I went hiking this weekend and I was gone for six hours and I came home and my dog sat on me the rest of the night. Like I have a Brittany. He's like a 60 pound Brittany. He was just like, I don't know what happened, but don't ever do that again. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. So I fear the uh, the nation's dogs are in for a very big uh, reckoning here in a few months. That's right. They'll all be in uh, seeing doggy psychiatrists for depression. <laughs> now, you uh, were you teaching this semester? So I happened to be on sabbatical, so the disruption for me was was very minimal. Uh, but normally, I would have been teaching. Yeah. So at least you didn't have to like all of a sudden figure out how to do everything online. That's right. That's right. Although I have to say, I'm pretty comfortable with that because I also teach uh, a lot of online courses for a university in Ohio called Ashland University. So I'm comfortable with that technology. God willing, uh, we'll be back in the classroom this fall. But if I have to use the online stuff, I'm ready to go. Yeah, as I, you know, I, I don't, I only teach one class anymore, but I've been teaching online for about 10 years and watching everybody struggle into this was like, yeah, particularly since it like happened over spring break and they're like, Hey, I know you've never done this before and you teach dance and theater, but you have three days to figure out how to do that online. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah God, I didn't even think of that. Oh yeah. boy. If you, yeah. if you work in the humanities or if you're a researcher, it was like a research scientist, like that was not an easy thing to over i was working with one professor who taught improv and i was helping her figure out like how to teach improv acting online oh my god wow <laughs> what a challenge yeah uh so you're out to, so you said you're out in massachusetts you're just outside That's of boston correct. right is that correct. Where, where are you from well actually i grew up in central massachusetts <laughs> a small small town outside of worcester mass now I'm in Canton, Mass., which is probably about 18 miles from downtown Boston. So uh, did you have brothers and sisters growing up? I had an older brother who lives now about 15 or 20 miles from me in a town called Medfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I should say I also I taught for six years at the Air Force Academy out in Colorado Springs. And then another six years at the University of Virginia at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. So. I did manage to get outside of New England for 12 or 13 years. <laughs> so, uh, and what did your mom and dad do when you were growing up? So my dad was an architect uh, for a small firm in Worcester, Mass. Uh, my mother mostly spent time at home uh, raising us, but later on she uh, worked at the local elementary school as a teacher's aide. So both of them were out. And what were you and your brother like? Were you guys close? Is he, you said he's older? He's about three years older than I am. Um, and uh, I, I mean, we were sort of close. We had a fine relationship. I guess three years was just enough to sort of separate us when we, be, when we became teenagers. So he kind of hung around with the cool kids in town. Maybe I was a little bit more of a nerd, <laughs> but if truth be told. A lot of people that end up on this show have that story. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it's how you end up writing. I think it's, yeah. uh, my sister was, she's five years older than me. And we, we always tell people we grew up as only children together just because we yeah. were never, we were never in the same school. And like, I was an athlete and she played piano. Like we literally, even though the town was like 6,000 people, if you could have two sets of friends that never cross, somehow we managed to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. It's exactly the same with me as well. So, uh, me and my brother, I should say. Yeah. But he's a good guy. He's got, <clears throat> he's got two kids and great wife and 
They're doing well too. They haven't been hipping with this COVID stuff yet. Thank God. That's good. Yeah. My sister and I, it, it's, it took us a long time into adulthood to like figure out how to be like, Oh, okay. We're friends. Like we, we dealt with the same stimuli at the house in different ways, but we understand why we do things in a way that when we were younger, we just thought like, well, I don't understand you at all. Uh, <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I feel like there are those sibling pairs that are just like, hey, this doesn't, like doesn't really fit. Like what's going on? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Although I have to say, so my brother and I have been kind of reminiscing a bit more recently. And uh, the more we reminisce, there are certain things we did together. So it wasn't quite as uh, uh, divided as I sometimes think it was. No, my sister and I are the same way. And, 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 the, and, the, and I guess you probably have this experience. The things that like I responded to in one way that she responded to in a different way as we've talked about it as adults, we're like, oh, we were dealing with the same thing. Like, I actually understand you better now because now I understand you weren't being weird. The same shit that was bothering me was bothering you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think we, my brother and I have had the same sort of uh, later in life meeting of the minds. Yeah, it's really weird. Like, I don't understand siblings that have been close forever. I'm like, I mean, that's great and everything, but I just, that was not my experience with things. Right, right. No, exactly. So you're a little bookish, you're a little nerdish. What were you like in school? Like, were you, did you write? Were you into books and stuff like that? Or were you just sort of a school kid who liked school? Um, I was always into history. And I think I got some of that from my father who, at a fairly young age, I remember he would read to me and attempt to be, although I would ask him to read these particular books. But I was fascinated with things like uh, Native Americans, you know, New England, Revolutionary War history. And then on top of that, he had a tendency to sort of take me to either Revolutionary War or Civil War battle sites. So he and I both shared a love of history. I definitely was interested in history in school. Some of the other subjects, I mean, I hated math. I was not good <laughs> at math. I'm still not good at math. Thank God my wife is. So what got you going to the, like, what, what got you into history? Like, yeah, was that I, something that your dad, like, just because of architecture was bringing stuff home? Or? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, he, he was, a, you know, a talented architect, and he was actually a talented artist. He loved to paint. And, of course, unfortunately, I didn't inherit any of that talent, but... He also loved history. Now, where that came from with him, I'm not entirely certain. Um, I will say this. He was 45 years old when I was born. He was born in 1912. Wow. And Yeah. And he remembered as a young boy in a small town in central Massachusetts having his hair cut by a Civil War veteran. Wow. And that just sort of blew me away that my father... Uh, knew somebody, sort of, who, who, was, who fought in the Amer American Civil War. So in some ways, he had a, almost a personal link with a large portion of American history. I mean, he yeah. lived, you know, throughout the entire 20th century, basically. So I definitely got it from him. The spark, where he got it from, I'm less certain. I mean, it sounds, I mean, if you're into art and architecture, you can't not also be into history. Like, that stuff doesn't exist. You don't just sit down and make stuff, right? Like, you That's have right. to be ensconced in that. So that, that to me, seems pretty easy, right? Like, Yeah, good point. Good point. And he, he always had, now that I, you've sort of got me thinking, 
he always had not only American history books around the house, but a lot of art history books, which I also liked looking at. So, you know, collections of books about Cezanne or Van Gogh or whatever. He particularly liked the Impressionists. And so if you're into art history, as you say, you know, if you have an appreciation for art, then it's a pretty short jump to develop an appreciation for history writ large. Yeah. And like if your brother and you are not, you know, I think siblings end up sort of gravitating, particularly if they're not like my sister and I were not close. And so you sort of gravitate to a parent in that role. And if that was sort of how you and your dad bonded, like that makes sense, right? Like, oh, yes. dad likes this. I like this. Like we're doing this together. Like, let's go do all the history. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Frequently, my father and I would be the only ones heading out on these history trips. Uh, my brother was much more into sports than I was, although I did play baseball. I was pretty good. But he was a better athlete than I was and more interested in it. And I do remember we were on some road trip and my brother wanted us to get home so he could watch the uh, Major League Baseball All-Star game. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to go to some historic site. So that kind of sums it up right there. Right. So you go through high school, you sort of interested in history, art, that kind of stuff. Uh, where do you go to college? So I went to a college in Worcester, Massachusetts called Assumption College. It's a small Catholic college in uh, Worcester, Mass. Um, and I was torn. I got to say, I didn't, wasn't sure whether I wanted to major in history or in political science. I ultimately ended up in political science, partly because somebody, an advisor, suggested that political science might be slightly more marketable <laughs> in the future. The uh, other the theme that happens. The other theme that happens on this show is people making decisions about their degree based on I want to do this, but I don't think there's jobs in this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I, I got to say, I have some regret. I mean, it doesn't keep me up at night, but I might have been more of a natural for history than for political science. But, you know, things have turned out OK. So, so I have no complaints. Let me ask, like, because as someone who has no idea what the difference of them are, what is more marketable about a political science degree? Well, I'm not sure that advice was accurate, but okay. the <laughs> argument was... <laughs> <laughs> the argument was that uh, a lot of political science majors become lawyers. Uh, at the time, journalism was still something of a thriving occupation. A lot of them become journalists. There was just this perception that history was a little more difficult to segue into a professional field. Um, again, I'm not sure that's accurate. In fact, I don't really think it is, but I followed that advice, and I ended up getting a PhD in political science as well. But I've always been devoted to the study of American history. It, it, I was a hiring manager two different times in journalism. Uh, I've worked in lots of different fields in communication. I've never seen a job posting that said degree in political science. <laughs> there you go. Case I feel closed. Like, I feel like you need to track that person down and give, they're, they're probably not around anymore, but give them like, if they are, <laughs> give them a thought or two, because that feels like, uh, I will, I feels like a weird, a weird piece of advice. So you go, you get your political science degree. And what was it like in Like, was it, it was small college. So you, there wasn't a whole lot to do, I'm assuming. And you were studying. Yeah. I mean, uh, so assumption college at that time, I think I had how many people in my class, maybe, maybe 400, 450 people in the class of 1979. And I got to say, I did develop some lasting friendships. I've kept in touch with some of these folks right up to this day. 
Um, so I wasn't entirely bookish. Um, I was certainly, I did go out on an occasional date. I wasn't always just, you know, hunkered down <laughs> reading about the Civil War. Uh, but I had a great time. I've got to say, I've told people at Assumption College this. It, it did change my life because I had some teachers there who really broadened my horizons, and I'm very grateful for that. How so? What does that mean? Uh, you know, look, I, li- I, lived a, I grew up in a very small town just outside of Worcester called Paxton, Mass. At the time, it probably had, I don't even think it had 2,000 people, and it was a rural town. It had, even had a few dairy farms hanging on for dear life. Um, so it was the kind of shelter, it was a great, great upbringing, but it was sheltered. And at Assumption, I started reading about just a broader, the sort of whole Western liberal tradition, and my eyes were opened. So, uh, it's been off to the races since then. So with 450 people in your class, that sounds like, uh, I mean, it hardly sounds like a college. Like, is it like, so this is a tiny place that you're at. Yeah, it was, it is. I mean, it's a little bit bigger these days. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there were about 1,600, 1,800 students there at the time. It was wow. a lot smaller than the high school I went to. Uh, but, you know, that has its pluses. I mean, sure. I really got to know some of the faculty quite well. A lot of them I stayed in touch with for decades afterwards. And then again, I formed some really terrific friendships, including some that persist to this day. So it's, you know, it's funny, like in my, when I graduate, I still talk to my graduate school advisor and having a class that small, particularly if you come from a small town, is probably a little bit like that graduate school experience where you get mentors and get people to help you sort of figure out what it is you want to do as opposed to just sitting in class and you know, reading the book and whatever, listening to a lecture. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you go to a large state university or even a large, some of the private institutions, you're going to get taught frequently by graduate students. Yeah. I didn't have any of that. I got to know some of these professors really well. And again, one of them I still keep in pretty regular touch with. Yeah, it's, I laugh. I tell people for the, I graduated, I got my master's in 2000. And for the last 20 years, I talked to my mentor there at least once a week. I don't make any decisions about my career without running them by him. Uh, That's great. I mean, you know, it's, I paid a lot of money. So I was like, I'm, you're going to continue to teach me long after I leave, just to be clear. Yeah. So uh, you're, you, do you go right to graduate school after that? Or when you graduate, do you go out and use that political science degree that was going to make you a marketable <laughs> person? <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly enough, so... I actually landed a job right out of Assumption College at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston, which is President Kennedy's library. And for me, that was like, as the Irish like to say, dying and going to heaven. Yeah. Um, And my mother and my father, who were diehard New Dealers, New Frontiersmen, they were thrilled that I got this job. I mean, I was basically just a glorified tour guide, but... The fact was that place was opening that October of 1979. I had graduated in May. And um, I basically was responsible for running all the sort of tour guides in the museum. And it was just a very exciting time because all these, everybody wanted to go to the Kennedy Library. Oh, I'm sure. So, yeah. Yeah, it was great and way it was, to start. It was basically what you and your dad did growing up with the Civil War stuff. And the, <laughs> exactly. the, like you, now you got paid to do it. 
Exactly right. I could not have been happier, believe me. So uh, are you writing at this point? Because at some point you start writing a lot. Yeah, that comes later. Um, so I you didn't really, you didn't have designs on it at that point. I did not. And the idea that I, at this point in my life, I have seven books. If I was looking ahead as a 22, 23 year old, 1979, 80, I, I wouldn't have believed it. Because I, that's just not something that I, I thought I was an okay writer. And I had some English professors who said I was okay. Um, but I never dreamed of writing books like I have ended up doing. So how long are you at the library? So I was there from October 79 until the summer of 85. So just shy of six years. And is that like, is that when you decide to go back to grad school or like what makes you leave? So that, so what made you, what leads you into graduate school? Like what in that six years is like, I need more education. So I, uh, it was always inclined to think I want to go into political life some, and s- somehow, not just read about the past, but maybe help to shape the future. And uh, it quickly dawned on me that was not going to happen unless I got some type of an advanced degree, short of, you know, knowing somebody, you know, growing up with <laughs> Barack Obama, who then runs for president. OK, maybe you'll be taken care right. of. But. I didn't have those kinds of connections. <laughs> I went back to Boston College, excuse me, I shouldn't say back. I went to Boston College or applied to Boston College, was admitted and became a full-time PhD candidate in the fall of 1985. Again, not so much thinking that I'd end up writing books or even being a professor, but thinking that it would help me get a credential that would get me into some type of policymaking position in D.C., this is the small town version of like, I'm from a small town too. And like, if you, I've tried to tell people, I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't want to write at the local newspaper to, you know, for 30 years to try to get enough clips so that I could get to some mid range place. The only really way that I knew out was to go to graduate school was to go and find a place where like you can get a credential and meet people that exist in those worlds and hope that leads to a job. That is exactly right. And uh, now the interesting thing with me, the more I got into that academic world, um, I began, and, and, and of course, part of a PhD, you know, as a student, you, you've got to do some, some teaching, you got, you got, especially at a large school like Boston College, they put you into the classroom. And uh, I, I never thought that would catch on with me, but it did. So the more I got immersed in the PhD program, the less government service, the less attractive that became, the more attractive the academic life came for me. And so you just had the undergrad, was that, that was like like a dual master's and PhD program or did they just do it like skip the master's straight to the PhD? You can skip the master's and go straight to the PhD. I I did skip over a little point. I initially enrolled at BC as a master's student and then just decided to go all the way. They did not require you to have a master's gotcha. to pursue a PhD. So you do, well, how long does that take you? Like five, six years, seven years? It did, it did. I entered in 85 and defended in uh, September, 1990. So almost exactly five years. Uh, so that's pretty fast for getting a PhD, particularly without a master's. Like you it were is. Do that. It is, yeah, I, I kind of buckled down. I mean, look, I was a little bit older, so I had worked at the Kennedy Library for just shy of six years. So I was in my late 20s, 28 or so, when I became a full-time PhD yeah. candidate. A lot of my peers were quite a bit younger. 
And once I hit 30, I thought, man, this this graduate life has a lot of attributes, but the pay isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I wanted to get this thing done. I wanted to get out there, make a name for myself. And the third, you know, when you turn 30, you start thinking about things like that. It's so funny. When I was at Wired Magazine, I think I was 29. I just finished. I was in graduate school. Maybe I was 28. And I remember I went into the editor and editor, the editor in chief and executive editor. And I was like, I'm about to turn 30. Like, I can't be the lowest level editorial person here. And they were like, uh, and I had to go get a. I moved over to wired.com and moved over to the online because I'm like, I'm about to turn 30, guys. Like, I need to have a title and pay that looks like a 30 year old. Right. <laughs> not right. like not like a college senior. Like, that's not for many reasons. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm 30, 31, 32. All of my friends are starting to make some decent money. Yeah. And I'm still getting by on, you know, a, a small stipend that's enough to go eat lunch at McDonald's. Yeah. So. It's I told people it was really hard to date like people your age when you're like, I got $4. Like, that's just not, <laughs> just not much of an opening line for anything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, not to mention. Yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine going out on a date at McDonald's. That's not going to fly. With yeah. Right. Like I can make you ramen at the house and this is before Netflix and stuff. So it's like, we can't really rent blockbuster. So <laughs> it's either food or a movie. You choose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So nothing like circumstances like that to compel you forward. Yeah. I feel like this is the mother of invention. Yeah. So uh, you get the PhD. What's the plan? Like as you're coming to the end of the PhD, do you have a plan? Are you like, this is the next step in the evolution? Yeah, the plan was, so by the time I, I'm reaching the point where I'm about to graduate with the PhD, I'm committed to the idea of getting a teaching position. I still occasionally flirted with dreams of a political career, not, not so much out front, but I wanted to be kind of a policy wonk or maybe a speech writer. But those dreams, that dream was starting to recede, and the idea of becoming an academic grew more and more on me. And by the time 1990 rolls around, I'm firing out applications to get professorships around the country. I was still single, so I had the flexibility uh, to pick up and move if I wanted to. Was there any place you were looking at, or were you looking at any place that offered you a job? Any place that offered me a job. Any place. And who uh, was that? Uh, what, where did you get your job at? So I ended up, I never, I didn't land a tenure track position for a couple of years. I think not until 94, uh, but for a few years, I taught one year at the University of New Hampshire in the political science department. Then I taught a year back at Boston College. They brought me back for a year, which was a great gig. And then finally, I landed a tenure track position at a place called Quinnipiac College. I think now it's Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. Um, they run a poll that's actually gets oh, quite a yeah, bit of yeah. national attention. Yeah. 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 So I was in the political science in a combined political science history department at Quinnipiac for a year. And then I landed a, the equivalent of a tenure track position at the air force Academy. Although technically speaking, they don't give tenure there. <laughs> did that, how did that happen? Was it just like luck of the draw or did you know folks out there? It was the luck of the draw. I saw the ad for it. I, I was really intrigued by it. Um, I had never been in the military. My father had been in the Army Air Corps during the Second World War. Um, he was in for the duration of World War II. Wow. Um, and, you know, I, being a student of history, uh, you know, 
partly interested in military history as well, uh, it really appealed to me to go to the Air Force Academy. So I applied for that really out of the blue and it worked out. I was absolutely thrilled. Yeah, it's, I have two good friends that went there, including a, a woman who I grew up with, uh, who wanted to, like, from the time she was a kid, wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. She yeah. actually would have graduated, I think, the year you got there. And huh. I've told people these stories for years. Like, starting in middle school, we lived in the same neighborhood. She would come get me up at, like, 5.30 in the morning. We gave her a key to the house so she could get me up to run with her because she was, like, getting, like preparing in middle school to right. apply to the academy when she graduated high school. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's, just, that is impressive. That's, yeah. that's, that's determination. Good for Those her. Those are the kind of people that get into that place, right? Like You got that right. Yeah. It wasn't somebody like me that's like, I don't really want to get up at 530. She's like, get out of bed. No, the, exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. The, la- the last time I saw her but before she graduated, she was we were out to dinner. She was at home. This is also how I knew I was not equipped for the Air Force Academy. They were doing some training where they like drop you in onto a thing and you have to like avoid being captured for like two days. And yes. if you get, ca- yeah. And if you get captured, they like simulate torture. And since she was a woman, they're like, they torture you so that the guys will give up information. And I was like, I want to hear nothing else. And I'm going <laughs> back to my English department. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's right. They called it at the time when I was there, they called it series survival escape resistance yeah evade or something yeah and she was telling uh, me this over dinner like it was nothing yeah yeah trust me i'm with you on this yeah it, that was i was just like well i see why you got up and started running when you were 12 <laughs> that makes sense now yeah yeah so uh how long were you at the academy yeah i was there from 94 to 01 2001 just mm-hmm. prior to 9 11 um, oh, and it, you know, look, it was a tremendous experience. I mean, it's obviously not your typical college or university. I mean, I had office hours. I think I needed to be in my office at seven thirty in the morning. <laughs> yeah, with most awesome. academics, that's you know, cruel and yeah. unusual punishment. Yeah. Um, and I think I had to stay there till about four thirty in the afternoon. Um, but I loved it. They were great students. Again, a lot of those students I keep in touch with to this day. Yeah. Um, Great guys, great men and women. Actually, the women cadets at the Air Force Academy when I was there, generally speaking, they were the best students I had. They, 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 you know, they they worked harder than the men. Yeah. I think perhaps to prove that they deserved to be there. Well, it was that generation, right? Like I, they, I don't think that I don't know exactly when they started letting women in, but like it wasn't. It had been recent. Um, it was relatively recent. Yeah, it was yeah. In, for the Air Force. I think it was the late nineteen seventies. Yeah, so like for Michelle, she I mean, she was bound and determined. Like she knew she knew what she needed to do. So that that doesn't shock me, right? Like just based on the sort of gender disposition of the way things run both in America yes. and in the military, like Yes. She yeah. got who was it? Was it because we lived in Ohio. I think she got John Glenn was the senator. Like John Glenn was the one that sponsored her. Nice. Yeah, I was like, I feel like you're going to get in. I don't know, yeah, but I feel yeah, like exactly. <laughs> I don't know if there's a rubber stamp, but that one feels like a rubber stamp. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She should have gone into the space program with that backing. Well, she wanted to be a pilot, but she wanted to be a combat pilot. But at the time, you could, she was a woman. She couldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so you stay there till right before 9-11. Um, and 
were you planning on leaving? Like, had you, were you looking for other jobs? Um, not every now and again, something might have popped up. I was being much more selective at that point. I was very happy at the Air Force Academy, but I did see a job that popped up at the University of Virginia um, for the Miller Center of Public Affairs, which is sort of a center that studies the American presidency. And it would involve some teaching, but also um, running a, well, I shouldn't say running, but being part of an oral history project on the American presidency. So I jumped at that because that was just, that was just made for me, at least I thought so. <laughs> and I guess they agreed because they hired me. So I moved to Charlottesville in the summer of 2001. Again, Charlottesville also, also is a beautiful town. Beautiful town. Beautiful town. So are you, so once you get into teaching, once you're at the academy, once you're looking at this, or like when does the writing start? Because I know like I was a professor for 13 years. At a certain point, they expect you to start doing things on paper. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I should have mentioned. So my doctoral dissertation at BC was on the early American use of covert operations. Uh, going back to George Washington's time and into the, the 19th century. So I wrote it around the time that the Iran-Contra affair was very much in the news. Wow. <laughs> I tended to see uh, a lot of stories that suggested that these kind of secret arms of government were relatively new. These were 20th century creations, so the argument went. Uh, usually people would talk about the establishment of the Office of Strategic Services under FDR, and then certainly the CIA under Truman. But it just struck me that that, that just can't possibly be right. That I, I just had this gut feeling that yeah. we've probably been at this from day one. And you know, I wasn't the first one to do this, but I think I went into a little more depth than a lot of folks. And so that book on early presidential use of covert operations or that dissertation uh, became a book that was published by Oxford University Press. And that's really? the point where I got the sort of writing bug. I thought so, if I can land a contract at Oxford, I can, I can do this. I mean, right. That's a, that's a, that is a pretty good justification that, yeah, I think I might be a writer. Right. So how long did it take to turn the dissertation into, because I'm assuming it's a sort of a, is it a trade nonfiction or is it more of an academic nonfiction? It's, I mean, from my perspective, it reads like an, it reads like a doctoral dissertation. Okay. For so, for worse. So, so you sort of left that in the academic publication version of things. I, I did, but you know, Oxford pushed it pretty, pretty, you know, it, it did quite well. Sure. Now it took four years. I, I got, I defended in September 90, um, graduated technically speaking in January 91 from BC. The book doesn't come out till 96. It took yeah. forever. Yeah. But Oxford put it under contract fairly quickly. So look, I was thrilled and that Oxford contract obviously helped me get the position at the Air Force. Again. 100%. And it also makes it a little bit easier to get the second book contract. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There's yeah. no bad books. That was not a criticism. That was just trying to understand like where sort of in the lexicon of the right. Because there are some people that I've interviewed historians who are more public historians who, yeah. you know, write more of the trade stuff. Um, and then I've interviewed other ones who like uh, Carrie Lee Merritt, Master of His Men is not a trade book. Like that is a deeply academic book that you do not read on the beach, but it's fabulous. So, right. Right. Um, so yeah. that's, it's just sort of trying to give people an understanding of like, oh, okay, this is sort of where that was. Did you kind of stay 
because you have seven now. Did you kind of stay in that realm of writing or have you sort of vacillated between the sort of academic stuff and the more public historian stuff? Most of my books I'd have to put in the academic category uh-huh. with with one pretty glaring exception. I co-authored a book on the relationship between Washington and Hamilton. Uh, and it happened to come out within a month of the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical. Very nice. Very Good nice. timing. Yeah. Totally coincidental in all seriousness. Um, and that thing just took off. But that was very much a trade publication. Yeah. So uh, your the oral history project is interesting to me. So you'd written the book. You'd, you were at the Air Force Academy. You're sort of now into this academic life. And tell me about the oral history project in Virginia. Yeah, so it was, uh, the National Archives used to routinely do oral histories of members of, of presidential administrations when they were no longer in power. They abandoned that practice, I think, sometime in the 1970s. Oh. The University of Virginia and the Miller Center sort of stepped in to fill that gap. Good. And uh, they did an oral history on the Jimmy Carter presidency. By the time I get there in 2001, uh, they're well into a... Uh, 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 Ronald Reagan oral history project and a George H.W. Bush uh, project. And uh, so I was put into both the Bush and Reagan projects. I eventually ended up running the Reagan thing. But, you know, I got to tell you, it was really a fascinating experience. I used to say to myself, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. Right. (laughs) I travel all around the country interviewing cabinet members, chiefs of staff, former members of Congress, people that I found absolutely fascinating. And we'd attempt to record their recollections. It's an important collection because a lot of these folks don't write memoirs. Right. They're not household names. So they're not going to be selling, you know, a deputy secretary of state's memoir. (laughs) We would spend a day and a half. I mean, hours and hours worth of interviews with these folks, many of which are now available online. Yeah, it's so as a journalist, I think the most influential the moment that I sort of realized, oh, this is the way I like to hear stories was when I discovered Studs Terkel, which is oh, different sure. than oral history, but it's the same principle, right? I'm going to just put this recorder down. We're going to talk and then I'm going to transcribe what you say. And that's the story, right? Like the story is this thing. Um, I don't know if you've come across him, but he's a famous journalist who did this. Oh, kind of sure, thing. sure. No, absolutely. Um, that, that, that's exactly the kind of... We wanted these people to tell their story. Yeah. And, you know, as an academic, it's challenging sometimes for academics to stay quiet uh, and let somebody <laughs> tell their story because you might, there's a tendency to want to correct them on dates or whatever. <laughs> you don't do that in a good oral history. You just let them tell their story and future generations can figure out where they might have, you know, gotten something wrong or maybe trimmed a little bit on account of another person or whatever. But um, I, I didn't have a problem at all with letting these people tell their story. And as I said, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, it's in, here at, at the press, at, at the ETC press where I work, uh, we did a project. It's funny because the people who work in university archives who do actual oral histories get really annoyed when I'm like, yeah, this is like the Studs Terkel version. And they're like, well, that's not actually an oral history. And I'm like, no, no, I know, but it's the same idea. And when Mary Shelley's Frankenstein 200th anniversary was two years ago. So I went around and interviewed people that worked in machine learning and artificial intelligence. 
and just had them explain how that stuff was impacting us today. And then transcribed it, edited me out, let them correct it. We footnoted some things that, you know, to give people some context for things that they were reading. And we had something like 5,000 people downloaded the first day we made it available. Wow. And I just, yeah. And I just thought like, this is what university presses should be doing, right? Like this is a way to like, you take a thing that's happening right now and you find these people because these, you know, a philosophy professor wasn't going to write a 2000 word piece that my mom and dad could understand. But when you get them to tell the story and they can't footnote it, suddenly it becomes accessible in really interesting ways to people. Very well put. Yeah, I could, could not agree more. Um, And again, I thought one of the strengths of our Miller Center oral histories uh, was we, we, we would go out of our way to interview, you know, secretaries, personal assistants, um, not household names by any stretch, but people that had real insight into what made yeah. Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush uh, click. And I'm very proud of the work we, we did there. When I was a journalist, the first thing I did was got to know the receptionist and whatever maintenance people I could find in any business I was covering. Sure. I'm sure. like, these are the no. people that know everybody's schedule and knows what's working and what's not working. Absolutely correct. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, some of the more, I mean, generally speaking, I would say all the interviews were worthwhile. Every now and again, you'd get some big name and you'd be all excited about it. And basically all they would do would just recite their memoir that they would already written. And that's not particularly helpful. Right. Yeah. No, it's the regular people that aren't, that don't have a dog in the reputational fight or the sort of ego structure of whatever it is they did that can just say, well, look, this is what was happening, right? Like, I don't know why, but here are, you know, the 14 things. Whereas if you go through official sources, you're like, I only heard three of those 14 things at the time. Yep, exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of stuff. So how long did you do that? Cause that also led to some writing that you did. It did. Yeah. yeah. So I was doing that from the summer of 2001 Uh, to the summer of 2007. Again, primarily on Reagan oral histories, H.W. Bush oral histories. And then about halfway through my tenure there, uh, we started the Clinton oral history project. So uh, three different projects. And yes, the two books came out of that, both dealing with Reagan, since I kind of developed just a sense that I had a feel for that presidency, just listening to these folks who had been with Reagan from Sacramento to the White House. Well, and if you had done the Iran-Contra stuff, too, like that was a big part of, I mean, that led to yes. a lot of stuff in the 80s. So you'd already studied, I'm guessing, with the yes. dissertation, a fair amount of what was going on. That is correct. Uh, very true. So and, these people are giving uh, you context to facts you already knew. That's right. Absolutely right. So, again, I'm really proud of that work. It's available to the public. You just go to millercenter.org, I believe it is. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Easy. Yeah, good stuff. So I lived in Texas, and uh, uh, so the Bush family is really interesting to me. Um, and it, despite the fact that I am a lifelong Democrat, I, I really liked H. Like, I thought, sure. I thought the elder Bush, I've told people, like, other than until we had Obama, like, he felt like the last American statesman to me, right? Like, World War II, CIA, like, his life had just been dedicated to the country. And whether you agreed with his policies or not was sort of irrelevant to me. I was like... This is a dude who like literally lost an election because he did the right thing for the country. And 
like, how do you have, like, I don't know. I have a hard time disliking or not respecting that. Um, I agree. So what was, tell me something interesting. I, I never do this because this is like a bullshit interview question, but like, what are interesting things that you found out through that project? Because I'm just fascinated by his life. Well, it was funny. Um, at the same time I was doing the Reagan interviews, we were, we were also doing the H.W. Bush material or interviews. And uh, the Reagan folks were, tended to be more upbeat, tended to be more, uh, <laughs> proud's not the right word, but pleased yeah with, shining with city on the hill done. yeah 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 um the hw bush people there was still this nagging sense of uh failure yeah. of defeat the fact that the president had not been reelected for a second term and they were all kind of wrestling with that now this is uh again the early to mid 2000s or whatever this first decade is called um and they were still wrestling with it. And, and it was an interesting sort of psychological phenomenon to witness. The other thing we picked up from the Bush folks, the H.W. Bush folks, uh, was that there was a lot of hard feelings towards the Reagan people. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And uh, some of those hard feelings, I think, might have been rooted in a little bit of jealousy that this Reagan had run, won a second term, carried 49 states. Um but I think also a feeling that Reagan was not as uh, was uh, I don't know how to put this uh, wasn't wasn't quite the statesman that they believed <laughs> yeah. their man was. I mean, he wasn't. Well, the, I mean, like Bush is literally served his country f- from the time he was a kid, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, you can love Reagan for you know California and his oratory skills or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, like H. Sir, he did all the things you were supposed to do at that time. That's right. He checked every box, including being a great baseball player. (laughs) That's right. Meeting Babe Ruth. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Um, so I'm sure there was some, and then, you know, I sort of remember I was in my teens, but like, I kind of remember when Bush was running that Reagan and his group wasn't totally behind Bush in that first election. Like, yeah, we want him to win, but it wasn't like, yes, rah, rah, this is Reagan 3.0. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there was just a, there was support, but it it yeah. was somewhat lukewarm. Yeah, and um, you, boy, you really saw it in that inauguration of H.W. Bush in January of '89. Um, the Reagan people were still pissed off. We're talking to them ten or fifteen years after the fact. They all got you know the worst seats at the inauguration, <laughs> the inaugural parade. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> just these kind of. Slights. I remember uh, Frank Carlucci, who was Reagan's last Secretary of Defense, talking about he didn't even find out who his replacement was. Was uh, either read it in the media or just a real last-minute notification. Just I think an intentional back of the hand from the Bush people to the yeah. Reagan folks. Um, yeah, yeah. The other interesting thing about the Bush people, we tried so hard to get George H.W. Bush to sit down with us. And on on the surface, he agreed to do it. He made these kind of bland general commitments that he would do it. But whenever we would really try to push the issue, uh, he would balk a bit. And finally, what he agreed to do was an oral history interview surrounded by 10 or 15 of his closest aides and cabinet members. And that's just not what we wanted to do. So we ended up pulling the plug on it. He just was not comfortable talking about himself. Yeah. 
Uh, it's that old Yankee spirit of, you know, don't don't boast about yourself. I yeah. think that's what I that was my psychological interpretation of it. Yeah. I just I mean, could not get him to sit down. That was, again, like I'm an American, so I have the same view that everybody else had at the time. But like that was sort of how I felt about him. It was why years later when he and Clinton finally sort of like put the past, you know, aside and became, yeah. you know, like Clinton became, a you know, the good Bush brother <laughs> that it yeah. was so interesting. Right. It's like Neil doesn't get talked about. So we're just going to put Bill in here. Um, it is it was so interesting because you could see even in that election, the disdain he had for Bill Clinton because Bill was the exact opposite of him. Right. Like hadn't served, was sort of very yep. external, was very extroverted. Um, you know, controversy surrounded him. Uh, and so it just seemed like he just wanted to do what he thought was right for the country and sort of leave all the bullshit beside. So it doesn't shock me that he wouldn't want to sit down for that. Right. Right. Although sad. Look, it, uh, I think it was sad. I think it's a loss to history. I mean, he wrote a number of memoirs, but you know, again, we would try to ask the questions that weren't dealt with in a memoir. Right. Um, George H.W. Bush was a bona fide American hero. I mean, he was the youngest naval aviator in the Second World War. Yeah. Um, shot down in action. Yeah. Ronald Reagan might have portrayed heroes in Hollywood, <laughs> yeah. uh, but Bush was the real thing. And again, that's another one of those sources of fiction, uh, friction between the Bush and Reagan camps. 100%. And I know he was the director of the CIA. Didn't he? Was he in the FBI as well or just the CIA? Just the CIA, but you know, look, UN ambassador, chairman of the Republican Party, first one of the first was he the first? No, I guess he wasn't. Well, no, I think he was the first American envoy to the People's Republic of China. Wow, I mean, this guy's resume was unbelievable. Right, two terms in Congress. Yeah. Um. So that being able to sit in sort of that front row of history with the Oral History Project. So you, you finished that or not, you, you, you're there for six or seven years. Uh, you write, do you write the Reagan book while you're there? Or do you write that later? I wrote them. So I wrote two books on Reagan. One is essentially a kind of reference work, a sort of mini encyclopedia on the Reagan presidency. The other one I would call sort of highlights from uh, Reagan oral history uh, interviews. Uh, I co-authored that with one of my colleagues at the Miller Center, Jeff Chittister, um, and that's called at, Re at Reagan's Side. So it, it basically just follows the Reagan story through the eyes of the people who are closest to him. Yeah, but still, that's, those are interesting things, right? Like, and particularly because yeah. he's such a, I don't know if he is anymore, but up until like the current guy, Reagan was sort of the people that the Republicans were like, this was the ideal Republican president of the second half of the 20th century. That's right. That's uh, right. And I think you're right. I'm not sure that is true anymore. I mean, Reagan's position on immigration, for instance, is about. Yeah. I mean, 80 degrees removed from Trump's. So. Yeah. I mean, you see that the tweet, the video gets tweeted out on a fairly regular basis of him talking about like letting yes. people in. So yes, he would be yeah. a, he would be a moderate Democrat today. I feel like. Yeah. And also keep in mind, I mean, Reagan had a tendency to avoid personal attacks. Yeah. He had this thing called the 11th commandment where he would never speak ill of another Republican and even tended not to speak ill publicly, for the most part, uh, against the Democrats. He had a good relationship with Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House. 
um, you know, they often get it together at the White House for a drink after five or six in the afternoon. So this is a man who, um, having been a Democrat for much of his adult life, didn't see the opposition party as the enemy. It, the, one of the best magazine pieces I've ever read is about Dick Cheney. Um, and it was a final, it either won the national magazine award or was a finalist. And it was about his transformation from this sort of moderate person who had friends on both sides of the aisle to the post heart attack when he became more partisan. And it's all about that time period and all about like how Cheney for a long time was like a beloved figure with Democrats. Um, yeah. Before yeah. this turn, right before this hard right turn, um, yeah. in the magazine pieces, I, I always try to tell, like when I'm working, when I was teaching and working with young students, I'm like, you don't understand. It was a different time. Like, and when I say it was a different time, like it was a different time. <laughs> like, no question. You could disagree no with people, but it wasn't like, well, you're very clearly a traitor. Like you can't have a conversation with somebody that thinks you're a traitor. <laughs> exactly. There's no common ground in a case yeah. like that. Hey, one of the first people to go in and visit Ronald Reagan after he was shot and almost killed. We didn't realize at the time how serious that incident was in March, 1981. But other than his wife, the, the second, I believe the second or third person to visit Ronald Reagan in the hospital was Tip O'Neill. Yeah. And Tip O'Neill got down at Reagan's bedside, and the two of them said the uh, the Lord's Prayer, the the, the Our Father together. Yeah. Imagine that today. I I, I can't. I can't yeah. picture it. That does that. That would not exist today. So right. uh, you finish the you you. So what happens after the oral history project? Like where do you go from there? So I read an ad in the American Political Science Review and the personnel section. They were looking for a hire at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, my mother was getting on in years. Uh, I was, as I mentioned, I was from New England. And um, the job itself, they were looking for somebody to teach courses on the American presidency. It was in Newport. My mother was up in Worcester, Mass. The distances here are pretty small. So she's like an hour, an hour and a half away. So for personal reasons and partly professional reasons, I went for the job at the War College and I ended up getting it in uh, July 2007. And you've been there since, yeah? Correct. And along the way, you've continued yes. to write. Uh, yes, sir. Um, so I wrote a book. I think I'm trying to remember the order here. Uh, I wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, this one you may not like so much. I wrote a book um, on George W. Bush's uh, policies during the war on terror. This came out in 2012. So I think that was the first one I produced while I was at the War College. It wasn't so much a defense of Bush's policies, but it did at least try to make the case that some of Bush's more controversial actions in the war on terror were rooted in uh, American traditions going back to George Washington. So there is a kind of link between that book and that first one I wrote on the use of covert operations oh, by yeah. early American presidents. It, you know, it's, I talked to Lind, uh, Lindsay Chervinsky about yes. her book, The Cabinet. And I've, the, the, as I've gone through and, and made little audio clips to send out, I keep sending out things where she'd say stuff. And I was like, hang on, what? Like, how did I not know that, like, that was true, <laughs> right? Like, like, how did I not know that the president's cabinet and his advisors can be anybody that he wants 
And so people that are saying like Trump shouldn't be doing these things, actually there's no tradition that says he shouldn't be able to do that. Right. 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 That's I how am I just learning that three and a half years into this happening? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And by the way, that is a terrific book. I'm not completely through with it yet, but uh Lindsay's a first class historian and that book, The Cabinet, is worth reading. But this is one of those things, right? Where it's like, oh, in American history, yeah, yeah. like like the history stuff is really important because things we think we know, <laughs> it turns out we may not. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, look, I gotta say, and I don't want to sound elitist here, but I am constantly shocked by. Um, I'm proud to be an American, but I wish more of my fellow citizens would invest a little more time learning about their political order and learning what we used to call civics. Right. Well, we don't teach it anymore. I mean, I had, right. I had history and civics in high school, but when I went and taught middle school and I, that my ed, I, in like 95, 96, I was in the English department, but I don't recall civics being a thing. No, no, we, we, we got away from it. It's really unfortunate. Now there is a, I think there's a kind of counter movement afoot to restore it, but uh, it's really unfortunate. Again, I'm just repeatedly shocked that, you know, you'll see public opinion polls where significant numbers of Americans don't know some of the just basics about separation of powers, for instance. I actually do quite a bit of work. I'm in a program through a school in Ohio. I mentioned earlier, Ashland University, I think I mentioned it. And we teach high school civics and history teachers uh, how to use primary source documents in the classroom. And I have to say, it's one of the more fulfilling uh, jobs that I've pursued. I, I just feel like I'm doing something good with that program. <laughs> so we're getting near the end here. So you're, you're out of the, um, where you are now, and you've sort of written some books. And what's the latest one that you've written? So the latest one I wrote is uh, uh, called The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, uh, The Decline <laughs> into Demagoguery and the Prospects for Renewal. Um, and it traces what I see as a kind of ongoing decline in the presidency, at least in terms of how the president sees themselves, either as a unifying figure, as a kind of a head of state that wants to bring people together, or play the role of a divisive partisan leader. And by the way, this is not just directed at Trump. This, this process began before Trump, and it's kind of a plea for a return to this earlier understanding where the president, the role of the president as head of state trumped, to use a phrase, uh, the role of the president as a partisan divisive leader. So it's a plea for a restoration of at least some elements of that earlier conception of the presidency. So let me, because I've now learned having talked to enough historians that when I say stuff, they're like, well, that's actually not true, right? Like my experience in 48 years isn't the totality of America. But my view of the presidency, when I look back on it where I am today, there's like this moment in the Clinton presidency when Gingrich and those folks you know, Gingrich's sort of 20 or 15 year assault on democratic rule seemed to break the process, right? Like up, up until then, it's felt like, yeah, there were an opposition party and like it was shitty and people were mean to each other. But like you said, you still would sit down with those folks after and you could have a drink with them, right? Like the public theater wasn't the private deal making. 
And it seemed like sometime in the 90s, the private deal-making went away and it became public theater and partisan politics. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment, Brad. And the only thing I would add to it is I think technology, particularly the internet, but also the rise of 24-7 cable news. Yeah. We are now, all of us as American citizens are so plugged in we don't want our political leaders to be making those backroom deals and having cocktails with each other. We want them, it seems to be, to sort of stand their ground. Yeah. And any effort at compromise is seen by partisans on both the left and the right as almost, as we were talking earlier, treasonous. Yeah. So uh, we're part of the problem, too. I mean, yeah, I think Newt Gingrich contributed to this. Um, Republicans would say the the sort of hatchet job that was done on Robert Bork when he was nominated for the Supreme Court under Bush, yeah. Bush won, that that was a real dramatic change in terms of judicial nominees. But we also have to look at ourselves. We're the ones fueling this hyper-partisanship. We're the ones making it more difficult for our political leaders to compromise and to build consensus. Yeah, I will say, and then we'll leave it here, is that one of my favorite books is by a guy named Larry Lessig, who's not a historian, but he sure. wrote a book called Republic Lost. And anytime I have these discussions with my friends about stuff, I'm like, you also have to look at the public funding of elections, because when that changed and money became the sort of ruling way, wedge issues are a really great way to raise money. Yes. And Absolutely. solving them doesn't help you raise money. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Both parties have their issues that they yeah. can roll out, whether it's the Second Amendment for Republicans or abortion, uh, abortion rights or whatever, yeah. you know, to, to rally the base. And uh, the minute any of our representatives show the slightest inclination to deal with the opposition to reach a consensus, they are targeted by these interest groups yes. and by folks like us that belong yeah. to these interests. No, a hundred percent. That's his point, right? Is that like you either believe everybody in politics is corrupt or you believe that the system that we've created is corrupt and that you can, if you're acting rationally in a corrupt system, you will appear corrupt, even though you're just doing, you're playing the rules. You're playing by the rules that have been set out, right? That's Which right. is raise that's money, right you know, run to your whatever left or right, gerrymander, make sure that you control your base. And, yep. you know, it's, it's so it's hard. Like, there are some people that I look at that I'm like, well, you're just a craven person. But that's always been the case. But, like, I'm from Ohio, right? Like, I like John Boehner. John Boehner and I did not agree on anything. But <laughs> he was one of those guys, you know, when he was trying to do the deal with Barack I thought, yeah. yeah, this is the way politics used to be. Nobody's going to be happy, but they're going to try to solve big problems. And that means sitting down together. That's right. And the fact that's that they right. ran his ass out of Congress, I'm like, well, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's yeah. ever going to try that again. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't know what's going to break us out of this uh, constant partisan warfare. I fear, unfortunately, it'll probably take some sort of uh, cataclysm. I'm certainly not hoping for that, but it's usually some sort of shock treatment that requires us to maybe regain our senses. And I try to be optimistic, but it's tough these days, particularly when you have a president who who fuels this uh, divisiveness and seems to have no sense of, of uh, decency. 
it also feels like this is the logical outcome of this sort of 25 year slide, right? Like that, I mean, literally their entire operation is mobilize the base, yep. you know, depress the opposition and don't surrender on anything, which that's it, right. This just feels like the most bold faced version of it. It is, but it, it doesn't is. feel that- different to me than the last 25 years other than, you know, it's, I, I don't like this guy. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I would say, Brad, is I, I would push it back even beyond 25 years, sure. at least in terms of the roots or the seeds of this stuff. Um, and that's what this latest book is about, not to work in a last minute plug for it. Yeah. But, so the lost soul of the American presidency. And this is how come when I talk to historians, I always say like, well, I'm going to talk about what I remember, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's a yeah, very right. tiny part. And I'm guessing about 70% of it's wrong. So. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Steve, it was great having you on the show. Thank you for coming on today. The lost soul of the American presidency. That's out now. That's so correct. Pe- people can go get that since we're still kind of locked down. You still have plenty of time to read. Great. Well, you guys, Brad, the terrific interview. Yes, and you have a great day and take care of yourself, and we'll talk soon. So, I don't know if this happens to you. But listening to the end of the interview, when Dr. Knott says, that was a nice interview, there was a moment, I'm a 48-year-old man. I've taught, done all these things. There was a moment where I was like, oh, the teacher, the teacher liked what I did. That's good. That's great. So that happened. I hope you enjoyed the interview. The book, The Law Soul of the American Presidency, is out right now. I had such a good time with that conversation, and it really has just had me thinking about as I talked about at the top of the show, oral histories and things of that nature. Cannot recommend those kinds of books enough, particularly now. Go out and find them. You can always start with Stud Circle. That's a good place to begin. Don't forget, if you go to thebradking.com, you can do lots of things. You can sign up for my newsletter. You can sign up for the happy hours that we have with Janelle Brown and Len Louise Fine. You can go to bookshop.org from my site and go shopping for any of the authors that you've heard on the show. And if you've liked what you've heard and you're here at the end, it would be great if you could go leave a review. Apple, Stitcher, wherever you're listening, go leave a review. All of that helps us out. Well, that brings us to the end of day 89. I hope that you are taking care of yourselves. I hope that you are taking care of your friends and neighbors, reaching out to those people, remembering that black lives matter, And until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born? I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! (laughs) 
Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.